As a pastor, I'm often asked questions, biblical questions, theological questions. Sometimes the questions are asked in person. Other times people write and ask questions. And those that have been in the written form, I've kept a number of them. And it might be a good and helpful thing to go through some of those questions and answers in this format now. And I hope it's a blessing as we do that, as we go to the scriptures. Uh, perhaps you've had similar questions or else you find insight into the questions and hopefully some of the answers that I've provided through the years. We're going to go now to the first of these questions I want to raise. The first deals with abortion. I received an email from someone some years back and it went like this. I'm probably going to get flack for this, but there have been two questions I've been dying to ask for over 30 years about abortion. First, why is the church and government asking a woman to have a kid, knowing full well they can't afford them or in no way want them? What about the thousands of teenage pregnancies that occurred because of a wild party or drunk night? What about the cost to society of bringing yet another unwanted kid in this crazy world. Mainly, like to know why they are against abortions, yet at the same time support the arms race and nuclear war, which will wipe out humanity. That does sound a bit hypocritical. Just a few thoughts. Feel free to comment. I consider myself a moderate, and Big Brother has no right to tell us whether or not to keep a potential kid or not. I am, however, totally against abortions after six weeks. That was the comment, question, and here was my response. One, why is the church and government asking a woman to have a kid, knowing full well they can't afford them or in no way want them? Answer, well, the current government is very pro-abortion, and many churches are silent on the issue. But to answer your question, because a child is infinitely precious, made in the image of God and does not deserve to die just because parents made foolish choices. For parents who cannot afford the child, there is such a thing as adoption. There are a great many adults who for various reasons are an unable to have children and who would desperately love to have the joy of raising a child. They are on waiting lists for years just hoping that they are given the go-ahead to adopt. Lack of finance is no excuse for murder. Two, what about the thousands of teenage pregnancies that occurred because of a wild party or drunk night? Answer, as above. Three, what about the cost to society of bringing yet another unwanted kid into this crazy world? Answer, what about the cost to society of being murderers? Who, say, who said they are unwanted? You do. And maybe their parents do, but not those who love children and would be overjoyed to raise a child in a loving atmosphere. Four, why are they against abortions yet at the same time support the arms race and nuclear war which will wipe out humanity? Answer, actually the idea of having nuclear weapons is to have such an arsenal available that no other nation would dare use their nuclear weapons against them. For example, 
the reason North Korea is not using its weapons against the USA right now, as you are reading this, is because they know USA has also such weapons, enough to wipe them out. While having nuclear weapons, our hope and prayer is that they will never need to be used. The reason we sleep sound tonight in the USA is because thankfully, though many nations hate us, no one is insane enough as to take us on militarily with nuclear weapons for the simple reason that they know that we have more than enough to retaliate such, should, such, should such a thing occur. Believe me, if the USA discarded every nuclear weapon it has and say Iran got one or more, the USA would not last another 24 hours. Bear in mind, too, that to attack with a nuclear weapon is really a suicidal act because that country or their friends would simply retaliate in like kind. To quote from one of Sting's songs, we share the same biology regardless of ideology. What might save us, me and you, is if the Russians love their children too. Being for life means standing against abortion and in this hostile world having enough weapons on hand so that no one is foolish enough to send a nuclear weapon our way. There's no inconsistency. We just hope nuclear weapons never ever need to be used. Five, you say six weeks. Why, this is my answer, why would killing a five-week-old baby be okay? I never re received a reply, but that was my response to what was shared with me in an email. Let's go to another question regarding uh, Zion. Pastor John, could you explain the term Zion? Z-I-O-N. Or if you're from England, Z-I-O-N. The word seems to mean different things in the Bible. Here's my reply. You're right in suggesting that the word Zion has different meanings. The word has undergone a progressive series of usage as the Bible has unfolded. The first time Zion is mentioned in Scripture is 2 Samuel 5-7, where we're told David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. The New Illustrated Bible Dictionary says Zion was the name of the ancient Jebusite fortress situated on the southeast hill of Jerusalem at the junction of the Kidron Valley and the Tyropoean Valley. The name came to stand not only for the fortress, but also for the hill on which the fortress stood. After David captured the stronghold of Zion by defeating the Jebusites, he called Zion the city of David, 1 Kings 8, 1 Chronicles 11 and 2 Chronicles 5.2. Later on, Solomon built the awesome temple structure on Mount Moriah, not the same hill as Zion, and moved the Ark of the Covenant there. This brought a new use to the word Zion as indicating the temple itself and the surrounding area. Certain Psalms tell us this, Psalm 2, Psalm 48, and um, Psalm 132. It was not long until... Zion became synonymous as a name for the city of Jerusalem, the land belonging to Judah for the people of Israel. Isaiah 40 verse 9 says, 
Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Zechariah 9.13 speaks of the people of God as the sons of Zion, indicating that the word had come to designate the entire people of Israel. Isaiah 60 verse 14. Zion is called the dwelling place of God, Psalm 9, verse 11. The entire Psalm 48 is a song of celebration concerning Zion being the city of God. The first three verses read, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Let me read Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Joel 3, verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. There are at least then four uses of the word found in Scripture. Zion is a hill in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem itself, the people of God, as well as the dwelling place of God. So how do we determine how the word is being used in our Bibles? The answer is that whenever we encounter the word Zion, the context will tell us which usage is in play. Having said all this, the New Testament gives us added insight into the word. In a passage in Hebrews 12, we are told, verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What a revelation this is concerning what is taking place as we gather in our day as the people of God. When we come together in worship on earth, we're also entering sacred space into heaven itself, joining with Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and all the holy angels, and into the immediate presence of God himself, all are present in heavenly Zion. Though a church service may have only a few people present on earth. It is actually a joining together of all the saints, for in the spiritual realm, there are always millions present.
we join the heavenly host, the saints of all ages, and the heavenly host of countless angels in festal array in worship to our God. In this sense, this is not heaven coming down to earth, but the exact opposite. Throughout the centuries, the Christian community have not always been the power players in a society. Certainly, that is the case in many parts of the world today. The people of God have met and continue to meet in very mundane surroundings, perhaps few in number, huddled together under the threat of persecution and great affliction. Yet, when the local church gathers, rather than heaven coming down, God allows the often tired earthly pilgrims to enter sacred space. For while physically present on earth, we join the heavenly choir. As we gather as the local church, our meeting may take place in a cathedral with its grandiose architecture and splendor, or it might be in a hewn-out cabin, in a barn, or in the woods. And yet each of us join the gathered community in heaven, joining the service already in progress in worship of our great God. One day, heaven will come down. Revelation 21 and 22 shows us that. But now as we gather together to worship, we the church enter sacred, holy, heavenly space. We've come, we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. May this knowledge stir our hearts to join with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Daniel, David, Moses, and Isaiah, all in the worship of God. May we join with Ruth and Mary and Hannah, with Zechariah, Samson, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and John, with Polycarp and Jerome, with Athanasius and Augustine, with Luther, Calvin, Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards, and Spurgeon, with Gabriel, Michael, and all the holy angels, and with loved ones who have gone on to glory before us, who stand in the presence of God, thousands upon thousands and thousands upon thousands more. Let's join them in song even now. We've come to Zion for this very purpose, to proclaim the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Praise the Lord. Next question, Pastor John, what's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? The short and simple answer is nothing at all. To answer this question properly, properly, I've, I've got need, I need to provide some background. Matthew, being a Jew and writing to primarily a Jewish audience with the purpose of showing how Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, was very reticent to use the name of God. That is because of its hallowed name in Hebrew society and religion. This dates back all the way to the time of Moses and to the sacred name of God revealed in the Pentateuch. Most scholars believe that this name probably sounded like Yahweh, but this is merely the best educated guess. Why is this only a guess? Well, 
uh, being very mindful of the blasphemy of taking the sacred name of God and using it in vain, one of the Ten Commandments, when writing the name, they removed the vowels. They did this in hope that this might cause people to not speak the sacred name at all, rather than speak it in a vain way. God was so holy and his name was to be so revered as no other name. And so to treat it lightly would provoke God's anger and wrath towards them as a people. Therefore, in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament, all we are left with when transliterated into English is Y-H-W-H. Many centuries on, we have to only guess what those vowels might be because there is nothing to show us exactly what they were. And as I say, Yahweh is the best estimate of a guess by scholars. Some say that the way this would have sounded would be Jehovah, but more careful scholarship dismisses that claim, and the vast majority would say the original sound of the name would be as close as possible to Yahweh. Most Jewish scholars are naturally reluctant to even look into this debate because of what the issue means historically in Jewish society and how easy it would be to blaspheme God's holy, his set-apart name. For us as Gentiles, growing up in a culture where the name of God is not hallowed in the same way, this appears to be an overreaction on the part of the Jewish people to treat God's name in this way. However, to the Jews, this made perfect sense, and someone writing to Jews would need to take this into account if he wished to be read at all. This Jewish reluctance to use the name of God is seen even in today's society in Israel, where, for example, the Jerusalem Post, a secular newspaper will spell the divine name as G-D, putting in a dash rather than the O vowel, so as not to offend their orthodox Jewish readers who can be very vocal. I find it interesting to note that in what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructed his disciples to make the very first petition a request that God's name would be given its due reverence. When we say, hallowed be thy name, we are actually asking God that his name would be revered and set apart as holy. It's as if we're saying, may your name be hallowed. Yet how wonderful it is that before we come to this request, we can, as his children, speak to him as Father. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus, in teaching his people to pray, establishes both the transcendent majesty of God as well as the deep personal intimacy we have as his children. How wonderful this is. I say all this to point out that while other gospel writers use the phrase the kingdom of God, when they are writing primarily to non-Jews, Matthew prefers to use the kingdom of heaven. Matthew will use the word God, of course, but it was rare for him to do so, and where there was the chance to use a different term, he did so. This becomes immediately apparent when we compare Matthew and the other synoptic gospel writers, Mark and Luke, when they are recalling either the same exact words of Jesus, quoting uh, him in the, in the gospels, and let me now quote some examples. 
this time from the King James Version. Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew, as the Jew, writes, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark, chapter 1, 14 and 15. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Let's go to Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We go to Luke, Luke 6, 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew 8, 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Luke 13, 28 to 29. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. And you yourself, you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Matthew 11, 11 and 12. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet... He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Luke 7:28. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Trust you seeing these examples highlight what I'm saying. Matthew 13, 11, he replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Here's Mark's account, Mark 4, 11. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. Luke 8, verse 10. And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Matthew 18, 3-4. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew nineteen fourteen, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid or hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Mark's account, chapter 10, 14 and 15. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Luke 18, 
16 through 17. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Matthew 19 23 to 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 23 to 25, and Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and said unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke eighteen twenty four to 25 and when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We're coming to a close on this, but here's a little more. Matthew thirteen thirty-one. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Here's Mark's account, chapter 4, verses 30 to 31. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the ground, in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. Matthew 11, 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violence, the violent take it by force. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Other examples could be given, but I think the point is made. Here's another question. Isn't divine predestination and election just fatalism? Here's the question. I'm really wrestling with this whole idea of predestination and election. Isn't this just a, another word? Isn't election just another word for fatalism? Here's my reply. Well, thank you for your question. Let me say, first of all, that you're not in any way the first person to wrestle with the weighty issues of sovereign election over against free will. Many have walked this road before you. In fact, I too have not always believed what I now believe. You can be sure that much mental and emotional wrestling took place as I was in the process of learning what I believe to be the biblical doctrine in this area. We all have traditions, and in the words of Dr. James White, the people most enslaved by their traditions are those who don't believe they have any. If you'll allow me, I'd like to share something of my story in this regard. When I first heard the message of sovereign grace, sovereign election taught, 
I have to admit that I resisted it. Though the teaching I heard was backed up with scripture, I thought I had other scriptures that would negate the ones I heard. Then I went to a question and answer session by Dr. Sproul on the subject, the first of many I listened to and watched and uh, understood, I might add. This proved to be invaluable for me because many of the questions I had were raised and I had to admit were answered from scripture in their proper biblical context. I was immediately alarmed by this as I came to understand that this whole issue required a lot more research than I had previously thought. I have a strong desire, deep desire, to be biblical in what I believe and teach. That means that I must continually hold up my traditions to the light of Scripture to see if they are in agreement. Knowing that I needed to believe what Scripture taught on the subject, I ordered much material and began my research. It's never pleasant to examine firmly held traditions, and I felt this was especially so in my position when I had taught other things at various times in my ministry. No one wants to admit the possibility that they may, in fact, have been wrong. Now, what I was considering was not some new way out doctrine. In fact, it was what I had been believing up till then that was the novel idea, the new idea, as far as church history is concerned. No, I was looking into the historic, orthodox Christian position held by men such as Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, the Protestant reformers of the 16th century, as well as perhaps the most gifted theologian of all time, Jonathan Edwards, along with men like George Whitfield, C.H. Spurgeon. In other words, some of the most outstanding men in Christian history. In more recent times, men such as B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, Abraham Kuyper, James P. Boyce, Arthur Pink, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. D. James Kennedy, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce could be added to the list. Others uh, in even more recent times could be added to the list. It took about nine months, perhaps even a year, of researching the issue in depth before I realized that there was a consistent and clear biblical doctrine of election and predestination. I also came to see that in order for me to believe what the Bible taught in this area, I had to dispense with my traditional understanding. Although now embracing the doctrine, I continued on with my study and yet waited another year before preaching on the subject at the church. There's no doubt this issue is controversial. I think many pastors and teachers who believe it don't preach about it for this very reason. The question then becomes, whom are we trying to please, God or man? Jesus preached it and watched many in the crowd walk away when he pressed the claims of divine sovereignty in election. In John 6, 65 and 66 we read, and he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. End of quote. These were people who looked like the real deal, were proclaiming themselves to be disciples, but they, they withdrew and walked with him no more when he pressed the claims of divine election, implied certainly in the text. 
read John chapter 6. This doctrine destroys all human pride once and for all and elevates the graciousness of God in saving a people for himself, for his own glory alone. Not everybody wants to hear this. Yet, I'm convinced, as C.H. Spurgeon said, Christ's sheep will not be offended by Christ's voice. You find his voice, of course, in the scriptures. Of course, this subject is not all I teach, not at all, but in that it is something spoken about regularly in Scripture. If I'm a Bible teacher, I have to teach something about the subject. I have no right to cut it out of the Bible or out of my teaching. If, as a pastor, as a teacher of the Word of God, I'm called to teach the contents of the Bible, which, of course, I am. All Christian denominations have some doctrine about predestination and election. Predestination and election are biblical words. Therefore, the question is not whether we should or should not have a doctrine of election. The question is, are we embracing the biblical doctrine? As I say, what I was considering was in no way a new doctrine, but one held for centuries by Orthodox Christians. Here are a couple of quotes from some of the historic creeds of mainline churches. Firstly, from the 16th century, the 39 Articles of the Church of, I of England, also known as the Anglican or Episcopal Church. Article 17 of Predestination and Election. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us, to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God be called according to God's purpose by his Spirit working in due season. They through grace obey the calling. They be justified freely. They be made sons of God by adoption. They be made like the image of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works, and at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. End of quote. Here's a quote from the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, chapter 10 of Effectual Calling. One, those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. 2. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins, 
and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. End of quote. As I've said, I have a strong and deep desire to be biblical in what I believe and teach. That means that I must continually hold my traditions up to the light of Scripture to see if they are in agreement. Some people just say that the church has been divided over these issues for centuries now, and I've actually heard more than one person say that they believe both in sovereign election and free will, saying the Bible teaches both sovereign election and free will, and it's a mystery that will be explained to us in heaven. The reason I don't believe that is because the two sides teach opposite and contradictory things. One says that God is the cause of our choice to receive Christ, and the other says that in the final analysis, we are. It has to be pointed out that both sides can't be right. One is wrong, and the other is right. And there's not really a third option. <laughs> I'm convinced that God-breathed Scripture, having its origin in God himself, is thereby, therefore, always consistent. It does not teach two opposite and contradictory things on any subject. Certainly there are mysteries. For instance, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery that our finite minds cannot fully grasp. Yet there's no contradiction in saying that there is one God, one in essence, and three in personality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Contradiction is not the hallmark of truth, but of untruth. And there are no contradictions in sacred scripture. Some say they are, of course, but I'm convinced that solid research shows that apparent contradictions are just that. They seem to be contradictions until examined closely. Now, immediately, someone will say that they are right in the middle on the issue, that there's a happy medium between the two extremes. I used to believe that myself. However, my research has shown me that every, and I mean every, every attempt I've ever heard to explain an in-between position was simply a presentation for the free will side. The bottom, bottom line is that either, to quote Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord, period, or else it is offered by the Lord, but whether or not it takes place is up to us. We are the deciding factor. Your question assumes that sovereign election implies fatalism. I would strongly disagree with that assumption. Here's what I mean. To suggest that everything that happens in life is in some sense planned by God immediately makes some feel that we're talking about fatalism. But fatalism is cruel and impersonal. God is certainly not either of those things. But the opposite side to this would say that nothing is planned by God. And I don't know of a more unbiblical statement than that one. To say that all the evil things that take place on this planet happen without any purpose to them at all? Is that actually a better position than saying that they happen for a purpose? <clears throat> that God will work out his purposes in spite of the evil taking place? I don't think so. God 
is personal and his plans are personal. Without doubt, the most evil action of sinners in recorded history was the crucifixion of the Son of God. There is no doubt this was unspeakably evil. But we have the record of the early church praying in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. End of quote. The actions of men were evil, and they are entirely responsible for their actions. But God intended this and planned this for the unspeakably good purpose of bringing about his entire plan of salvation. This is what theologians call the biblical doctrine of compatibilism. In a similar way, Joseph's story in the Old Testament shows that although what the brothers did to Joseph was evil, God planned the events to bring about his good purposes. Joseph later said to his brothers, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. The third chapter of the historic Westminster Confession of Faith opens with these words, God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Adding the qualification that God is not the author of sin and that people aren't puppets. Now that statement from the Westminster Confession was based on Ephesians 1 verse 11. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. So I would encourage you to keep wrestling with these lofty concepts. It's well worth the effort. As you do so, I think you'll find, as I did, that Scripture has one consistent message on this subject. Well, that's a lengthy answer to the short question, but I hope it was also helpful for you to hear that today. Lord, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the Word of God. As we continue in the Word, that's how we show ourselves to be true disciples and in knowing the truth. Truth makes us free. Lord, as we understand your Word and understand it better, that truth will work its work in our hearts so that we, where we are bound, become free and see the light of the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and see him in truth. Our one God, three persons, Trinity. Our Lord Jesus Christ, one person, two natures. Lord, we thank you for the truth of who you are, our great God, we ask that you would continue to lead us into the truth and that you'll do this for your name and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.